Celebrating the end of an historic Copa America with a Sunderland AFC special edition. Welcome to Hand of Pod. video connection on Skype because the rain in Buenos Aires means that Seba has been unable to make it. I'm Sam Kelly. We're joined, as I've said, by video by Seba. Say hello, Seba. Hello, how are you? Very well. How are you? Yeah, not bad. I'm glad that I, I couldn't be there. Uh, we all live in the same city, but I have a son, you know, I had to I had to be there uh, on time and the storm lasted long enough for me to not to be able to make it. And But at least I, I, I'm having this... Uh, help uh, from Skype and I can be with you. And it's good to have you with us. As usual, we're joined by Daniel Colasimone of Argentina Football World, who's been covering the Copa America for Soccer International this this month. Good evening. That's an Australian magazine for the majority of our listeners who <laughs> possibly haven't heard of it. Um, English Dan, Dan Edwards, who's been covering it for Goal.com. Correct. Good evening. I, of course, have been covering it for ESPN Soccernet, and we've got a special guest who I'm not even going to start listing the number of publications he's been covering it for, but we have promised to to mention the fact that he's the editor and co-founder of The Blizzard, which we'll be giving a little plug to later on. He was so thrilled at the idea of coming on to this podcast that he literally responded when we invited him, well, Vickery said yes, so I can't turn you down, can I? Say hello, Jonathan Wilson. Hello, Sam. How you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, it's lovely that everybody managed to make it here because, as listeners might be able to hear, it's bloody pouring down with rain still on my roof, but we're all safe and dry, at least, which is the main thing. And we've got a Copa America to discuss, but first of all, we're going to talk about the something I know Seba probably wants to get off his chest, <laughs> uh, the, the goings-on at the AFA, the, the Asociación Argentina de Fútbol. That's not right, that's AAF. But anyway, the Argentine Football Association. Um, we've been having a special meeting which is just about maybe terminating somewhere around now. Some of the rumours are starting to come out. Seba, you're, you've been following it more closely than we have, possibly. Um, tell us what's, what's been happening. Yeah, the first thing that uh, goes through my mind now is, is that we could have uh, pretended that I was uh, at the CESA right now, like just outside the meeting, <laughs> taking calls from... Backdrop, right? But that's not true, that's not true. I'm just following on, on, Twitter, on Twitter and on TV, and it's, it, it, the meeting is still going on as we are recording. It's close to 9 p.m. now on a Monday. At least there's uh, something that is starting to, to leak out of, of uh, that meeting is that uh, they have approved this new format for the first division, which will now include 40 or 38 teams, depending on the rumors you, you, you hear. They are still discussing about the national team's uh, future, but it looks certain, too, that uh, Sergio Batista is not longer going to be the manager, and he will be replaced by Alejandro Sabela. And I'm sure Jonathan might rem- will remember Sabella from his playing days in England for Leeds United and Sheffield United. He's an excellent manager. He was my, my favorite manager before Batista got elected. And yeah, well, now he's, he's going to have a 
three years to prepare for the World Cup if they if they leave if they let him work and well he could have had four four years to prepare for the World Cup and he could have had a crack at the, at the Copa America and I think we could have done better. Uh, but that's history now. He's going to be named uh, the national team manager, and there are probably going to be changes in the youth uh, national teams too, with uh, Walter Perazzo for, uh, of the under-20 national team and Oscar Garre of the under-17, both uh, removed from the AFA too. So more news will come uh, during the week. We'll have more certainties during the week. But I think it's uh, we can say it's, it's uh, before and after this historical Monday, uh, 25th of July. It's an interesting and perhaps controversial idea that Argentina could possibly have done any better in the Copa America than they did, Seba. I don't know where you get the, that kind of thinking from, to be honest. But it, it does seem like the experiment with this ridiculous decision to just appoint as many of the 1986 playing squad as they could for bizarre reasons. Uh, popularity or because Grandona wanted puppet managers or whatever. I'd, it looks like that's coming to an end. And at the same time as, as ending that you know, spell of the national side being a bit of a laughing stock, they've decided to drag the first division into it now as well, if it wasn't already bad enough with the relegation yeah, system. Just, I, th- I think it was particularly uh, damning, or I think it would have been particularly painful for, for Argentinian uh, folk to hear what Oscar Tavares had to say uh, during the week, where people asked him, what, what's your secret? How have you made Uruguay so successful in your, in your time in charge? And he basically said, I didn't do anything. I just copied the... the system that uh, Argentina used with Peckerman, which we've talked about before on the pod, uh, like having you know, a youth system and, and players playing with the same uh, style or through the, through the underage teams. Um, so I'm sure that was quite painful to hear for Argentinians. Um, yeah, well, to, to talk about the politics behind this decision, um, it's, uh, it's easy to think this is crazy, but it's also very easy to understand why Grondona and the AFA are going through with this idea. Um, there is one guy who's um, the owner of one TV channel and also the owner of Independiente Rivadavia de Mendoza, this uh, national team, national B uh, side from Mendoza, where Ortega Ortega used to play. This guy is called Daniel Vila and he wants to run for president, for, for AFA president. He wants to go against Grondona in the elections in October. And apparently what's, uh, what's being talked about now is that Villa had this idea of a 40-team first division to make it more inclusive for the, the teams from the provinces, to make it easier for or, or more difficult for big teams such as River Plate to go down, to be relegated. And now apparently he had this idea, but Grondona beat him to it. And now Grondona has the, 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 the consensus from all the teams from the second division and most teams from from the provinces. So this is looking like a masterstroke from Grondona, uh, even if it's really twisted and, and it's not something that we're really looking forward to. But uh, politically speaking, it's a masterstroke from Grondona, who is probably going to be re-elected once again in October. Yeah, he's pulled out of the back again. Jonathan, what do you think of this 40-team, 38-team, whatever it's going to be, competition? I think you can draw a quite useful parallel with, with English cricket. The English cricket for a long time had an 18 to, well, a 17 team, then when Dome became first class county in 1992, an 18-team division. Uh, and the, the, the quality at the bottom end of that was very, very poor. And the result was that a, a lot of games were, were, were very one-sided, were very easy. 
the split into two divisions of nine teams has coincided with English cricket now you know, be becoming a serious force in, in world terms and possibly at the end of this series against India becoming the number one <coughs> team in the world for the first time in 50 years it seems to me it's just logical that you need to concentrate talent at the top and you know, it, it, I think it probably depends on the country how many teams you can sustain in, the, in your top division so whether that's 20 whether it's 18 whether it's 16 or in the case of Scotland maybe 10 or 12 but there's no, no country in the world can sustain 40 the quality at the bottom end has to be very very poor and I think that has serious consequences in, in, in two regards. One is that the players playing for the, the big teams are not going to be tested week in, week out. You know, they're going to have easy games. The second thing is, what does it do to the TV audience? Are, you, are people really going to watch games between Boca or Estudiantes or Racing and a bad side they beat 4 or 5-0 without even breaking sweat? It's, it just seems to me to, to miss the point of a league structure. The point of a league structure is to get the quality concentrated at the top. And if you, you know, if, if you if you break that up, you, you end up with, with with a very banal. Well, I think one of the things that we said before as well. I know that a lot of us aren't much aren't very big fans of the the average points relegation system. I think one of the few things we've always said that kind of saves it in one sense is that it means every single game means something. You know. Even a um, game between two mid-table teams at the end of the season means that they're fighting to bring up points for the next year to stay out of trouble or to go for the copper. But now, surely, if you've got a team, a league of 40, 40 teams, like, there's going to be so many dead yeah. games, you know. In the middle of the... You can't... Yeah, well, well, probably yeah. just from the first few weeks. Like, do you, um, this seems uh, unbelievable. Do you, do you see it affecting... This probably is a question to John and to Seba more than, more than anybody... Do either of you see it affecting the quality of the national side? Because, I mean, the Brazilian league structure, for instance, is famously labyrinthine. And, I mean, up until 1976, they didn't even have a national first division. It never seemed to, in national team terms, seem to, to affect them too badly. Well, in Brazil, for five years, I've had a very normal 20-team top flight. Mm. I, mean, I don't understand why people try to complicate this. It, you know, the, the fact is that the, the best countries in the world of football have very simple league structures where... 20 teams or 18 teams play each other twice, home and away, and the one who gets the most points at the end of the season is the champion. Mm. Now, I guess to an extent it doesn't really matter to Argentina because so few of the national team play at home. So, as long as it's still possible for foreign teams to, to spot talent coming through, then, then they'll still go off and they'll go to Italy and Spain and, and wherever, and, and they'll, they'll be tested there from the age of 20, 21, 22 onwards. But that's a terribly negative way to look at it. It's, it's to say that, oh, well, the, the Argentine league doesn't really matter because... There's no good players there anyway. Is I mean that's that's admitting defeat. And it's no, you know, I, mean, I think it's true that they're still going to produce their talent. It's just mm. a matter of whether that it's, it's going to be get, uh, what stage it's going to get picked up by European sides, basically. So it's not you know it's not really negative. I think it's true. Yeah, I, I just think I think the worry is that if if the 19, 20, 21 year olds haven't been tested by playing against decent sides every week, if every other week they're playing mm. against effectively a second division side. Is their development going to be at the same stage when they move to Europe? Is that going to set them back a year or two? And I think that's that's got to be a concern. Yeah, Seba, do you are you concerned about this at all? Because it kind of seems like the AFA have taken one good decision with regards to the national team and an utterly ridiculous decision with regards to the domestic league. Do you think the one is going to affect the other? Um, I don't. I don't really think that's going to happen. I mean. Um if you take the example of Uruguay, they don't have a particularly strong league. They have two big teams, and they always win the league between them. And very rarely 
the third team or a fourth team can, can, can aim to win the league. Everyone except for Sebastián Coates and one of the sub-goalkeepers, all of them play, play um, their, their club football in Europe. So um, when, when people criticize the, the Argentine league and they say that it's not good for, for the national team to have only European-based uh, uh, players, I think they're missing the point because uh, Uruguay have shown how a bunch of millionaires, as, as, they, call them, as they call them respectively despe here in Argentina, have won and have played as a team. Um, another thing that, that I think could happen is that more teams will be able to showcase their talents and, and more players are going to have a bigger window to show uh, what they can do and, and, and European clubs will will see them more easily than if they stayed in, national, in, in second division. Because there are a, a few good teams in second division and I think uh, it's not going to be a walk in the park for many of the big teams uh, once this uh, new system uh, starts. One thing... So, um, one another thing that is interesting... Sorry, another thing that, is, that would be interesting to uh, to see is how are they going to make this? Because if they go with the first stage of five groups of eight teams, and then the best teams from that first stage go to a second stage and they play against the, the best teams from the other groups, it's still going to be pretty competitive, you know. And I don't know. I, I I'm not going to say that I'm starting to see some sense in this uh, format but I, I don't want to go completely against it until I know exactly all the details and, and exactly how it's going to be played. Um, can I just say so I think Sam and I can speak perhaps as guys who, who on the surface should benefit from this because both our teams are in, in the second division I'm a Ferro yeah. fan, Sam's a River fan um, <laughs> And this, and I think I've seen this reflected in other people as well, uh, a lot, mainly from River fans. But I don't think this is the way people want to get promoted into the first division, just by by default, basically. Like I, I would prefer to see Ferro build a team with a, with enough strength to make it into the first division, and then you know build a use that as a base, and then and try to to, to stay in the first division. Um, so it's like it doesn't feel very satisfying that oh suddenly you're in the first division not having done anything. Uh, so, you know. yeah, and, and to, to some extent as well because of the way that they're going to be splitting it halfway through the season and then playing off the relegation while the other half of the division plays for the title it's, it's as if they're not exactly entirely abolishing the second division they're splitting out relegation between the first and second divisions and making the, the third division is going to remain very much the third division you're just going to have a, a two-tiered top flight which is yeah, but bizarrely, really labyrinth system. That doesn't look like they've really thought it out. No, <laughs> well, exactly. I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that they have. I'm, I'm trying to work out what the empanadas are like at the moment because they've just arrived and we're trying to. Okay. I'm getting more details now on the voting Ooh. process. We go back to our man live at the AFA, Silva. Four teams, uh, four, four clubs uh, decided to not to vote. They, they decided to, to pass on the, on the chance of voting. Those are News, All Boys, Racing Club, Vélez Arfield, and All Boys. And then Olimpo had no representative in this meeting, and all the others voted for, gave a positive vote for this new process. So nobody voted against this. So of course, the... of course, this is a, a fear. This is surely for fear of a backlash from Grondona. You know, if you vote, vote against him, you know which team is going to be relegated first. You know? 
Well, of course, the, the, like, the Machiavellian genius of this from Grandona is that he, he knew when he proposed the plan that he would get the votes for it because it's benefiting so many second division clubs and it's benefiting all the big five because they're, they're safe now. Uh, so, like, it's almost benefiting everyone. Like, everyone's going to be in the first division now. So he wasn't going to lose the vote, which is, you know, the genius of it. But it's, it's a horrible, horrible thing. But, you know, the, the AFA speaker said that in this coming tournament, the Apertura 2011 and the Clausura 2012, there are not going to be relegations. <laughs> there you have it. A but, complete, yeah. But we'll have, the, we'll have the normal tournament then. It'll be... 20 teams still for this coming year and then they'll change next yeah. year? Okay. Yeah, it's going to start on August uh, 2012. Right. This new system, this new format. So this sounds really exciting when we're doing it now, but since this is going to come out two days later, it's just mm. going to sound a bit silly. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, it's enjoyable. Should we move on to the Copa America? Let's, Let's move on to the Copa America, yeah. The, the big news that everybody will be aware of is that the, the Copa America finished yesterday as we record on, on Sunday afternoon. Excuse me while we hand over some food. I think most of those are cheese and onion, John. Um, with Uruguay beating Paraguay 3-0 in the final to claim, I think, a very deserved championship all in all. It, it means that Uruguay have won 15 Copas America, edging just ahead of Sebas Argentina <laughs> in, in enemy territory, as it were. It, it keeps up the, the record of... Is it something like eight Copas America have been hosted by Argentina? Uruguay and Argentina are the only two sides to have ever won the Copa in Argentina. I mean, it's fairly inarguable, really. I mean, the four of us who are, who are sitting here, myself, the Dams and John, were, were all at the game. Paraguay never looked like they were in it. No, no, the final point, was <coughs> completely one-sided. What, what you really needed was Paraguay to perhaps score... I wouldn't even say score an early goal. I would say they would like to score a goal sometime in the second half and then just hang on till the end. But with, with Uruguay scoring early through a deflected Suarez goal, there was, yeah, they, they, they got even better after that, and there was just no hope for, for Paraguay after that. And yeah, clear. Both of them really sort of tough defensive teams, but uh, Uruguay with an extra dimension of, of having um, great players like uh, Suarez and, and Forlan up front. I, I was struck by, and I don't know whether this is something I just haven't noticed about him before, because I quite like his tubby slowness around the, the pitch, his casual demeanour. But I was struck by how much of a dirty bastard Nestor Ortigosa seemed to have become. He didn't realise? It's always been like that, sure. Yeah, well, that, that was what I was thinking. I was thinking I must have just not been able to realise this because mm. it's not... John, you've got your hand up. The first, the first league game I ever saw in Argentina was Independiente against Argentinos and he was sent off for a horrific two-foot tackle. <coughs> so in my head, he was a dirty player. The fact he could pass him was a bit of a revelation to me. Yeah, I think it was very, his very first game. He came on in like the 86th minute as a sub and he got red-carded before the end of the game. So, yeah. I know it's... I'm slightly biased towards him perhaps because of course the first time I saw him play live was that Argentinos Independiente game the, the Argentinos scored twice in stoppage time to win 4-3 went on to win the league the next week and, and I was there as well and he was no, superb no, I, in I love the guy, games. But he's, he's a dirty but, yeah he's um, <laughs> there's no denying I, I thought what was really obvious in the final is I mean, exactly what you say about when he strolls about the pitch that he was the, the real creative presence in the Paraguay side and the Paraguay side without many creators Especially with the Caribbean left out the starting lineup, and it was very clear that Uruguay targeted him. They, they really, yeah. uh, Rios was on him immediately, all the time. And I think it was a, a real concerted effort from Uruguay to get an early goal. I think they realised Paraguay let contain, and if they could get the early goal, well, Paraguay's whole tactical approach was was thrown, yeah. thrown off kilter. And so I mean, in, in that first quarter of an hour, I mean, yes, it was the goal, but it was also. It was uh, a Suarez shot that was tipped wide by by uh, by Vieira. 
and there was the, the header from the corner there was that led to a handball that should have been a penalty so which was Opti Costa it, which was Opti Costa in, yeah. in the very first minute yeah. I did quite appreciate the irony of Uruguay being denied by, by handball on the line <laughs> um, yeah. but I mean in, yeah, that, that first quarter now was a real was, you know, a, a, a clearly a real effort you know, get the early goal if it knackers you out it doesn't matter it's worth it for the early goal mm. they got that goal they eased off the quarter now got their breath back came again before half time got the second and there's no in the world Paraguay are going to score twice no no, absolutely. And do we all agree that Uruguay were deserving champions, or the best team that you saw in the tournament? Or? They came through very well at the end. Like I saw them early in the tournament, and they didn't do much to impress me. I mean, they drew against Peru after going to go down, and was when they go down against Chile, if I remember right, before coming back. And I thought, ah, you know, maybe they're going to go the same way as Argentina, Brazil, you know, yeah. four tournaments. But I think the turning point was that obviously that win against Argentina, which. To be honest, I thought on the day Argentina could definitely have won. They had chances to win it. Musleda played, played a fantastic game that day. Mm. And Uruguay were kind of lucky enough to get that first goal, kind of a really like a goal that wriggled in in the corner, from a corner. Yeah. But apart from that, you know, from that game and from that penalty shootout, I don't think there was any beat in them. In the last two games, the semi-final and final, they played some fantastic football. So I, I can't complain. I think it was yeah, almost a perfect tournament that they, they grew into it. Mm. The yeah, first yeah. game had a big problem um, with their defensive line that they couldn't get the depth right. I think possibly with um, Godin and Fusile not being there, it, it took them a little while to adjust. The goal that Peru scored, you know, it was a long ball over the top and Victorino and Dugano were, were caught on the halfway line far too high. Then the opposite happened against Chile that, that they, they really struggled to get the gap right between the defence and the midfield. The defence seemed to be sitting a bit too deep and you saw uh, Valdivia when he came on in the second half playing in that space and really causing problems but actually I think the, the game against Mexico they, they, they played much better than 1-0 suggested and that, that awful pitch in La Plata I was, I was at that game and it was um, far better performance compared to the first time uh, absolutely yeah and then against Argentina I thought what was interesting was that they were almost better with 10 men the, the first half I thought Argentina were actually you know, slightly fortuitous goal the Uruguay scored Argentina equalised I thought Argentina were on top but then as soon as uh, Diego Perez was sent off, uh, what Tabaras did, he, he, um, he, he moved in from the left side into the middle. And he basically said, OK, we will leave that flank clear because we know Messi cuts in all the time. We don't need a player on that flank. So that flank became effectively fullback against fullback. And the fact that Argentina had an extra man was, almost became irrelevant by the end. So I mean, Tabaras really... With one very simple stroke, I thought Batista. Now, of course, the, the flip side of that is Batista should have reacted and didn't. Mm. And possibly he should have played somebody on the right to stay on the right and move Messi in field. Yeah. And it's, but but Tabaras won that battle, battle of wills very easily. And another example that, that I uh, thought I noticed anyway during the final, I'm sure that I'm going to put this to you now, John, and you'll destroy me um, on it, but was that uh, the start of the second half, Paraguay came out obviously in need of needing to attack and for maybe 15 minutes or so it caused them some problems Aino Valdez hit the crossbar I think at one point from an Aldi I mean, to, to be fair that was, a, I mean, that was a freakish effort it was a yeah. it would have been an extraordinary goal if it had gone in it wasn't sort of a creative move no the kind um, of thing if that goes in against you you hold your hands well what could we have done you know yeah but uh, they were they were attacking down the left with Elvis Marecos who's a very as Paraguay Ralph Ralph Hanna said on Twitter earlier today a very kind of journeyman uh, left back, but he was causing them some problems because Uruguay had basically abandoned their their right wing, and then he sent Edinson Cavani on, and clearly told him for the first ten or fifteen minutes, just 
stick on the right wing and Marenkos was pushed back and it happened at exactly the same time as Esti Garibia came off of Paraguay to join with Marenkos and as a result they didn't have the same thrust down that side as as, uh, Martino was clearly trying to, to lend them so it's another example of Tavares is genius. I mean, I, I, I honestly wonder if Tavares might be the best tactician in the world. I think, given the relatively limited resources he has, what he's done with that side is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and not just with the senior side. If you look at the results of the the, the, the under twenties, the under seventeens, in fact, the under twenties got to the final of the South American Championship and knocked Argentina out of the Olympics by doing so. The fact that the under seventeens got to the final in Mexico um, earlier this month. Yes, yeah, so they, they, they've been in the final. Of the, yeah, but the two youth tournaments they've been in this year. And that suggests that you know if you can integrate those players coming through, that, uh, that Uruguay can be you know, a power for, for several years to come. Yeah. Do, do you? you know, think one of the things I think, one of the mistakes that's often made is that a team has a good tournament and people also oh, it's a platform to build on. Well, very rarely is it a platform to build on. Far more common is it's it's the end of an era. It's because that that team. Combination. It, it's yeah. It's it's reached the end of a of a narrative arc. <coughs> And it actually, mentally, emotionally, it's very hard then to, to pick yourself up again. But if you've got 17-year-olds and 20-year-olds queuing up to come into the squad... You can start renewing. Then you can start renewing. Exactly. And, I mean, I can't think of anybody better in the world than Tabaras to manage that transition. Yeah, and, and one of those young players coming through, for instance, is Sebastián Cuartes, who came on, I think, was it the second game he, he played his first game of the tournament? And first, I think it was his first cap, actually. Yeah. 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 And he, oh, he was I mean, magnificent. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and I remember English Dan actually mentioned him in one of our preview podcasts and said that he was, <coughs> that, that he clearly had the ability. He plays for Nacional in Uruguay. He's just won the league with them. 20 years old, right? Yeah, 2021. Yeah. 20, He's been one of my favourite players for a couple of years now. I've seen him, you know, following the Uruguayan league. He's done wonders in Nacional. I mean, he led them to the league this year, mm. and I think even in 2008, 2009, he was in the team at like 18 years old. And he's just yeah, a phenomenal player. He's about six foot six, but very kind of like assured on the ball, like quick, marks well. And yeah, I think his kind of defining moment in this tournament was against Peru because he took a, a hell of an elbow to the face from uh, I believe it was Vargas. Who got Vargas, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he also took another one from someone else. I can't remember. And he just kind of like kept cool, like he didn't let him sort of get riled to it. He just kept playing this game, and I mean that takes maturity for a twenty-year-old to get elbowed in the face. And I don't think you'd have known he was twenty if you hadn't known. No, was it you last night, John, when we mentioned that he was slightly astonished <laughs> that he was so young when we went? Yeah, well, I assume he was like 22, 23, Yeah, but it, but I mean for a twenty-year-old to be that good is yeah. Plus he's got yeah, I think now five international cats under his belt as well. Just coming in straight from the tournament is. Not many players do that. No. Seba, I'd I'd like to bring Seba back in because he's uh, perhaps feeling slightly excluded (laughs) on the other end of this Skype connection. We can can see his face and he's looking (laughs) bored as hell listening to us all wittering on. If he he talks, we can eat. That's that's very true. By the way, these are caprese if anybody asks for that. (laughs) I'll have cheese and onion here. Does anyone cheese and onion, yes. please? I might grab one if, the, if nobody else wants any. For our listeners, we should explain that we hoarded empanadas in, which is why we're discussing flavours. Um, Seba, is being a, uh, obviously a fan of, of a country who should have done far better than they did in, in the Copa America, if you don't mind me reminding you, is then if you could have one player, let's say, from Uruguay's side to draft into the Argentine team, who would it be? Tomales. <laughs> Luis? <laughs> yeah, but Tavares would be my first <laughs> choice. But then, who other than than Luis Suarez? <clears throat> I mean, he's, a, he's in my opinion, he's a he's a bit of a similar player to Carlos Tevez, 
but he without the ego. You know, he plays for the team. He the, the, it's clear that he is happy as long as the team wins. And if if he can do a good tournament himself, more the better for him. But the way I saw it and the way he he he, he reacted when Diego Forlán scored both goals. Uh, it was pretty clear that all he wanted was for Uruguay to win it. And his talent, I mean, he's, he's something else. I would have suggested, uh, I, I, would have, I would tell him to stop um, diving and play acting that, uh, that much, but um, technically speaking and for what he brings to the table, I think Luis Suarez is uh, my choice. Mm. And I would replace either Carlos Tevez or Angel Di Maria <laughs> with, with Luis Suarez any day, any day. Surprise, surprise. No, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm really interested to hear you say that because I'd have thought Argentina had such a surfeit of forwards that the players you needed, uh, mm. Lugano, Cortes, mm. people that can actually yeah. defend. Yeah, well... Or, or, yeah, or that's, Maxi Brown, actually a full-back mm. who, can, who can go forward. Yeah, but I think in the, in the end... Um, there's, a, there's this notion that every, everyone seems to agree that Argentina don't have enough uh, world-class or quality defenders. But I think it's, it's more a matter of we have been playing without a manager who knows how to uh, set up a, a defensive unit or a defensive line since the year 2006, maybe, after Peckerman left. Basile came along and he was past its prime in my opinion and then we have Maradona who kept playing players out of position and, and then he was replaced by Batista who didn't seem to care about whether they were playing week in week out or, or, or not he was uh, the, the squad he he called up for this Copa America was nothing short of a disaster and he, he, he had no options he had no midfielders who could play wide all he had was a, a a number of central midfielders that couldn't do anything and then uh, a team that was overcrowded by, by strikers and we see that we saw that Diego Milito didn't, didn't have a single minute uh, in this tournament so uh, I think I think that was a that's another thing that kind of distracts uh, people and, they, and people will think oh we have no defenders but I think we have better options than Gabriel Milito and Nicolás Burdizo to play in the center of defense. And if we don't have, uh, at least we should start trying and, and, and try to get some players to get more experience. Yeah. Players like Garay, Paneja, I think they're, they're better than... And they could do a great job. And I think if, if Sabela is named uh, as national team manager, he's going to know how to work on a defense and how to get the best out of defensive players um, so yeah that, that's why I think I picked Luis Suarez uh, without even thinking twice because I really admire this player but yeah if, if there is an area of the team which, that needs uh, improvement that is the defense more uh, on a system wise than rather, rather than uh, player wise if, if, if I'm making myself clear I don't know mm. Well, thinking of um, him and Estudiantes, you might get a call up for like young uh, Fernandez, who's just moved to to Napoli. Uh, who's a good young young defender? Is about twenty twenty one, I think. So. Um, guys that he's coached before. Well, but yeah. Rojo, Rojo, Rojo. Sabella said, I saw an interview with him where he blames uh, Estudiantes' much worse performance this year on on them not having Rojo anymore, rather than uh, yeah. slightly modestly, of course. But uh, yeah, obviously, so you, you probably look at those two at least as possible defensive. 
players in the, in the squad. The, the, the other complicated thing about, about this whole issue is that of course the, the World Under 20 Championship is about to start later this week, and Argentina have a team there. So I, mean, I, I, I don't think it's clear at all who, who's going to coach that. But if Parasso is there, or he, he, he knows he's, he's leaving the job. Uh, you know, two weeks, three weeks later. I mean, that's that's not a good situation for, for them to be in. It's not. It's not. But but Perazzo, <laughs> uh, might be better off having enjoying a, a two or three weeks weeks vacation in his native Colombia. He's, the tournament is being played there, and I, I think the, the, the best thing song. for him <laughs> will be to go to the beach and enjoy. Uh, he's if I hate Batista. Well, he's, Batista is nowhere near the level of hatred I have for, for Perazzo. Uh, that's, he's the most terrible manager I ever saw. Yeah, he was horrific in the, in the Sudamericana under 20. Um, yeah, he, I think it would make no difference if he's actually standing there or not, because they were that bad in, in the Sudamericana. You know, you would replace him with anyone and they will probably do a better job. Yeah, so if, if Sabella doesn't work out, then you can almost guarantee Perazzo will be the replacement in a year or two's time, <laughs> I, I think. Right, we're not going to see the types to go for whichever would make whatever, what's going to make Seba angriest. The steam, the steam's yeah. going to be rising from from the computer screen now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm applying for an Uruguayan passport now. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Well, yeah. Seba, this is something I wanted to ask you as well as, as an Argentine fan. Um, were you supporting either of the two teams in in yesterday's final? Because there's this bizarre rivalry uh, between Uruguay and Argentina which obviously is, is famous and when they play each other on the pitch it, it's war our, one of our, our friends who we spent a bit of the Copa America with um, Sam Lee Sam Mamis on, on Twitter actually put put money on some of the booking points available uh, how many cards would be given during Argentina-Uruguay and got surprisingly long odds on over a certain amount of booking points considering that there's always at least one sending off and a uh, lot of bookings and obviously he ended up winning the bet but when they're not playing each other a lot of Argentines will go for Uruguay I mean in the in the semi-final last year of the World Cup Buenos Aires I actually watched it in Montevideo but in the days leading up to it you know there were lots of people here saying they were going to be supporting Uruguay were you sticking up for Uruguay yesterday or no if you, if you tell me if you ask me which team and which set of players and which manager I like the most out of those two is clearly Uruguay but then uh, by winning Copa America yesterday, Uruguay went one over Argentina. They have 15 to our 14 titles, and they also have two World Cup titles and two Olympic golds. So now they're uh, they are, according to one statistics, they are they are the the the, the team with most international trophies in in the world. And mm. that's quite an achievement. Of course, you can compare Copa America titles with uh, European Cup titles because. Uh, we have been playing this uh, Copa America since since a long, long, long time. So it's many, many editions, and it was a yearly tournament. The, the, we used to play every year the Copa America, and that's why Uruguay has so much, so many European cups. And who knows how many would Germany or Italy have if the European Cup w- w- was played with the same fr- frequency? So yesterday, John's, John's I was counting a bit something of, up on his fingers at the moment. Wasn't yeah, it? I think this was the 42nd Cup America, and I think there's been 13 European Championships. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that's that's. Uh, that's why Uruguay have so many. In other words, Uruguay have won more Copas America than there have been European Championships. Yeah. <laughs> As have Argentina, in fact. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that certainly puts... So yeah, yesterday, uh, on Sunday, I was a little bit divided between this 
affection that I have for Uruguay and the, this, uh, how, how I admire this team and how I really like every one of, the, of their players, except perhaps, perhaps for Diego Perez, who, who can really kick your butt <laughs> all the time. But uh, the rest, uh, I'm okay with all of them. Uh, but then I, st I also wanted Paraguay to beat them just to prevent them from, from overcoming uh, or from surpassing Argentina in this all-time trophy count list. I think a lot of Argentinians are, are, in a, are similarly on the fence. Uh, I, I saw one comment saying, somebody saying, um, we, all, you know, we all sort of support Uruguay, but when they were a weaker team, now that they're kind of really as strong, strong as us or stronger, you know, we lose that affection a little bit. Yeah. What was it like in, in Buenos Aires, Seba, uh, on the night that Brazil went out? Because I, I can't answer my own question there because I was actually at the game. So I, I was surrounded by Brazilian journalists trying not to laugh my ass off at it. But I imagine that there must have been at least some joy. Apart from anything else, if Brazil had won it this year, they would have become only the second team to win three coppers in a row. The first, of course, being Argentina back in the 40s. I'm imagining that there must have been quite a party atmosphere. I was I was here last year when Brazil went out of the World Cup. No, last year was was a bigger thing because especially because Brazil went out of the World Cup a day before Argentina right. did. So we were still preparing for our quarterfinals and and we saw Brazil getting knocked out and we th we thought right we have a good chance now and and at least they're not going to get to the final. And this time it was it was the other way around. We we got eliminated and then the following day it was Brazil and to be honest I haven't seen uh, a big demonstration from not even a single klaxon I heard from uh, from my apartment no, nobody was celebrating maybe when just at the moment when they missed the four penalties <laughs> it was kind of a funny situation a funny moment but yeah, exactly. no, no, no more than that because we have our own problems now you know we have to uh, we can laugh of uh, what's going on with Brazil when we are in a worse situation than them yeah it's it's tricky why do you um, serve as, as a native South American now rather than just particularly a native Argentine what we saw this Copa has really been defined maybe not so much by brilliant games but by a lot of upsets Peru and Venezuela were playing the third place playoff and that would have been unthinkable even for most of us prior to the tournament starting and a week before it started so it's been defined by, by these upsets why do you think this is happening why, why, why is the, the playing field being levelled I mean as recently as the last World Cup qualifiers Peru finished bottom with three wins Venezuela four or five years ago was still considered the whipping boys of the continent they don't only ever won two Copa America matches prior to this copper and I think both of them in fact were in the last edition weren't they which they hosted what's happened this year why, why did Brazil and Argentina not just walk over everybody anymore well I, I think this is more of a, a Jonathan's speciality I will give you my opinion I think if you if you take Brazil and Argentina as a as as, as part of one uh, phenomenon, I think is wrong because it's, it's impossible to compare the situation between, uh, for, for these two national teams right now because Brazil are clearly preparing for 2014. They don't, they didn't have the pressure to win Copa America. They were not playing at home and they won it almost every time in the last 20 years or 15, 10 years. Um, so they were playing with a few youngsters. They were trying new things. And they were they didn't have the, the same pressure Argentina had. And for Argentina, we were playing with a full strength uh, team, but we simply got out coached by every opposition we faced. And um, I think it was more a matter of not having the right manager to 
to play in a, in a competition like this. And the likes of Peru, Venezuela, Paraguay, Uruguay, they all got a good manager in place. They all uh, knew where they, what they were playing uh, for and how they, they, the manager wanted to play. And that's how they did so well in this tournament. That's why they mm. did so well in this tournament. So I don't think, I don't think it's a matter of uh, Peruvian players, Venezuelan players getting better than Argentina, uh, Argentine players and Brazilian players. I think Argentine players and Brazilian players are still better than them, but it goes to show how important tactics are, and that's why I thought that's he was more Jonathan's speciality. Sure, would, would you agree more with that? Well, I think there's I think there's two issues which, which I guess are related. I think the first one, and it's a point Tim Vickery kept making, and, and yeah, it really is his point that I'm stealing, um, <laughs> that I, th- it was, I think it was the qualifiers for 98 when, the 98 World Cup, mm. when South America went to the belief system where everybody plays everybody home and away. Yeah. And what that does is it guarantees every team nine home games of significant quality that are genuinely competitive. And that means that A, they're regularly tested, it means B, that they get money, hmm. and it, just, it gives a logical structure. It, it, it means that the smaller nations, they can, they can budget uh, you know, from the money they, they, they're getting from those games to put the coaching infrastructure in place. It means that they, they, they have a constant supply of top-class opposition, so they're able to test themselves against the best. And I, I think that really has helped helped the, the smaller sides the likes of Ecuador and Venezuela to, to rise up and you know 20 years ago they, they were hopeless and now mm. I, I, I think that you know World Cup qualifying for 2014 with four teams to qualify automatically one to a playoff out of nine I think it's going to be a fantastic dogfight because yeah. even the two teams the two common ball teams who are worse in this tournament who you'd say would, would be Bolivia and Ecuador they have such an advantage playing at home at altitude that they're still going to be difficult. So I really think any of the nine could, could conceivably make it. Yeah. And I think that, that possibly is one of the reasons, I mean, maybe it's a background reason, but it, it did increase the pressure on Batista because you know, it's not that, they, that African can wait another year or another 18 months and see how things go. If they start this qualifying series badly, mm. if they having to, to play catch-up, then there's actually a serious possibility that Argentina might not qualify. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is tactical. And I think it's to do with the, the, the systematisation of football, generally at the top level, is very difficult to replicate in the national team. That at a club, you, you, you train together every day, players develop an understanding with each other, it becomes instinctive. And so some of you receive the ball, and they know, without having a look, where the run's being made, they know where they have to deliver the pass, they know how quickly that player runs, they know if he wants to do his right foot or his left foot, and these are things that are processed subconsciously. With the national team, there's a, there's a moment's thought, that slows everything yeah. down from an attacking point of view, it's very hard to develop an attacking system, a defensive system is much easier to develop, because basically you just get men behind the ball, at its simplest level, get men behind the ball, and once you have men behind the ball, you actually need the attacking system to the situation to break that down. Mm. And, and that is, is harder to replicate. So I think that's why you see, generally speaking, in international football, at least where you have rough parity of opposition, the number of goals is smaller, and if you have fewer goals, it means that it, it's easier for the, the slightly lesser sides to, to get results. Sure. You know, if you've got an average of two goals per game, and you score one, you don't lose. If you have an average of three goals per game, and you score one, you lose 2-1. Yeah. Uh, this is, sorry, I was, I was going to say that this is... Um 
part of the reason, of course, that Sergio Batista's plan to play like Barcelona it was insane. Never came to fruition yeah, when you've got one Barcelona, 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 Barcelona player in the attack. Because of 40 years yeah. of philosophy that you know, this generation coming through happens to be a massively talented generation who can take that philosophy and produce a type of football that we haven't seen since the you know, hmm. Ajax and the Netherlands of the early 70s who took those ideas to Barcelona. And to, to, to the idea you could replicate it... Even if you had players of equivalent quality to Barcelona, the idea that what's taken them 40 years could be replicated in two weeks of training at Ezeso is, is crazy. Yeah. But just look at the players you have. You don't have... Sure, you have Messi. Messi can play like Messi. But you can't play like Barcelona and Messi if the other players aren't playing like Barcelona players. Yeah. So you look at Barca and he has Xavi and Iniesta Busquets breaking forward, pinging the ball about in very small spaces. You look at the first two games in the Copa and you've got Mascherano, who's not even the midfielder with Barca, but he's him as a centre-back. And you've got Benega and you've got Cambiasa, who... Perfectly adequate players as they are, but they're not Xavi and they're not Iniesta. No. You don't have a fullback overlapping all the time, so you, you don't have that perpetual wide option on both sides. You don't even have um, forwards cutting in in the same way that Bill and Pedro do. So you, you can't just take one player and say, oh, play like you do for your club, if the other ten players aren't like the players. We, we saw a similar case with Dani Alves and, and Brazil, absolutely. right? Like yeah, he, absolutely. He had a horrific tournament. Like he, mm-hmm. how many, he played two games, I think, before he was dropped on yeah. three. Yeah, so yeah two, two games, was, and he was yeah. destroyed by Caribbean. And he was destroyed by Escaribia because Escaribia was able to run at him. And a, a Barca was always one of the centre-backs moving across to cover behind Dani Alves. Well, they're pushing up on the halfway line and it's not even getting that far like, into the danger. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think actually... Dani Alves was really badly exposed. I think Lucio looked yeah. looked weak in this tournament. Yeah. He looked an old player. The whole Brazilian defence, actually, because I think we've had the idea for probably the last two, three years, as this kind of Brazilian team under Dunga had kind of lost its creativity, we started to kind of realise that Brazil had a very strong defence and that was kind of where their strength was. But now, I think, after this tournament, we can't really say that because, you know... Well, I, I, think, yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, the, the team personnel... Issues. I'm perfectly happy with Andres Santos at the left back. I'm perfectly yeah. happy with um, uh, Thiago Silva. I think uh, Julio Cesar is not the goalkeeper he was two years ago. And as soon as you have a goalkeeper who you don't quite trust, and the, the first goal he conceded against Ecuador was a, mm. it's a terrible goal to concede, I think you could, he was at fault in the, in the World Cup quarter final against the Dutch. Mm. And I think once the defence starts to lose its faith in the goalkeeper, the, the whole thing starts to fall apart. Yeah. And Lucio. I don't think he's, not, he's never a quick player, but I think he's just lost a fraction of pace, and so it's, it's not as easy for him to cover behind um, Dani Alves. What I was slightly surprised by, and I, I can't quite work out why it would happen, but under Dunga, Ramirez seemed to cover Dani Alves a lot. Mm. But that, that relationship seemed to work very well, mm. and this tournament it didn't. I, I, I'm not quite sure why that's, I, that had broken down. I, I got the impression Ramirez might have been asked to be a slightly more dynamic presence, if I could use such a cliched term. In the midfield, yes, he was, no, he was bursting forwards. He was bursting yeah, forward no, yeah, forward. yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, but, um, I also think that uh, the, the shape of the front four had an impact on Dani Alves. I mean, football, football's holistic. You make a change in one part of the pitch and you have effects you haven't really counted on in another part of the pitch. Mm. But I thought Brazil actually played their best football. I mean, Ecuador had a terrible time. So beating them 4-2 was neither here nor there. Their best football actually came in the first half of the group game against Paraguay when they had Jadson playing. So what you had, instead of having a front three with Ganso tucked behind, you had Neymar in an attacking position on the left, you had Pato playing as a, you know, a, a almost an orthodox centre-forward, Ganso behind him, and Jadson just sort of shuttling up and down on the right. And the advantage of that was that Ganso 
you know, some of the creative burden was taken, taken off him by Jadson, but it also meant that when you when you're playing the ball through midfield, there was two short options. You weren't, you know, right. when, when Lucas Leiva and Ramirez had it in deep positions, they weren't just looking at, at Ganso. They had the option of Jadson to the right to play the short pass. Mm. Um, I, I, I really I was baffled by. I was baffled by why Jadson got so much flack from Brazilian fans. I was baffled by why he was taken off at half time. I mean, okay, the argument that he got a yellow card, he probably should have had two yellow cards in the first half and might have picked up another one. Okay, that holds some water. Then but he was but why, why leave him out after that? Yeah. Hmm. He scored, he had a very good first half. And even, even if he lost faith in Jadson, and okay, he didn't have a. He didn't have a brilliant first half individually. I, th- I think the shape looked better with him without him yeah. himself playing particularly well. Yeah, that was the best answer looked, definitely. But play Olano in that yeah. position. You have no yeah. need to bring back a dilettante like Rubinho who did absolutely nothing in the tournament. No. <coughs> he had a nice hair there. He did have a nice hair. Yeah. Better, better hair than he had before in fence. But, but, but I don't have the main one. Are you, you, are you seriously criticising people for that? <laughs> yeah, I am, absolutely. <laughs> okay. it's, uh, but by the time people hear this they'll probably be more than more than aware of why John's asking me that because they've have seen the video that I've that was included on Brazilian television and they would have seen what my hair looks like uh, but no at least mine they say on Brazilian television uh, <laughs> they, they said that I what Jack Lang Snap Kaka Pop uh, translated it as was uh, they said that I look like a scarecrow and that I look like a young David Bowie <laughs> which is fairly incontestable actually so I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna deny it but yeah at least mine's even <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, it's the only thing I can. Neymar's is, is just is silly, and I do realise what I look. Well, Robinho is silly as well, but it was also funny as well. So yeah, yeah. You know, it's a torment hair actually. I mean, this seems fairly facile and trivial, um, and it is. But um, <laughs> but I mean, p- partly you know, Neymar's hair it marks him out as being this very egotistical, very look at me type player, yeah. which he is. Messi's hair fascinates me because he's got the most boring, sensible hair. Of any player since since well, Kevin Sheedy, he has now. He has now. Don't always. If you look at the description of the of the Pibe, the, the famous piece in El Grafico in 1928, yeah. it describes him as having tousled hair. Mm. And and in fact, this is what Argentine, particularly Argentine number tens, have had. Maradona, Tevez, the big. None of them ever have good hair. Um, yeah. And, and Messi has got European hair, mm. and that I think is that's the problem. It, it sounds ridiculous, really but it, but it, it's I think that's it's emblematic of of why there's still this sort of lack of faith in him. As a, is he yeah. really one of us from Argentinian fans? This could also be the reason that Javier Sanetti isn't trusted in Argentina. Yes, I mean, he's got very, very sensible very hair, which is scientifically proven. 1940s European hair. And Esteban Cambiasso, of course, who has no hair. No, no, yeah, Grant Wall lookalike. Seba, do you think we're we're onto something here? Um, maybe could that could be the case, but I think uh, no. Sorry, I was distracted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not as riveted by this conversation as everybody else. That's a... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I would love I to hear you made something up there. I couldn't, I couldn't elaborate anything at the moment. I was yeah. thinking of. I was going through another mental process. <laughs> John, I'm I'm wondering. Obviously, we've already talked about the, the, the winning manager, Oscar Washington Tabaris. Not nearly enough. Um, no, I, I can imagine. I can only imagine your excitement if he gets unveiled as Sunderland manager at any point soon. Um, but apart from him, who, which managers have you been most impressed with tactically during the well, tournament? Also, which teams I was, I was going to yeah. ask before. Yeah. Well, I, I think Sergio Makarian's had a, had a huge influence over the tournament. Um, Quite aside from his rant in the press conference. Well, that was brilliant. It's a call for people. But he's right. I mean, 
To, to criticise Peru for being negative when he's clearly building a side, yeah, a side that finished mm. bottom of, of qualifying for the, for the last World Cup, um, a side that lost every away game in, in that series. Yeah. For them to, to go away, I mean, by, by definition, coming to Argentina, uh, you know, they, they are away games, although they're technically neutral, it's, it's not in Peru. Yeah. So that whole issue of, of, of away game mentality affects them. For him to take them and get to the semi final is an extraordinary achievement. He's right to, to kind of say, look at the players I've got. So this rant we're talking about, he, he, was, he was asked in the press conference why you're all so negative. And he, he called the journalists mean-spirited mice for yeah. not, not appreciating what he'd done. It was astonishing. I'd, one of our friends, Joel Richards, was, was there producing the television <coughs> footage of it, and uh, it, it was brilliant. He also pointed out, almost shouting at one point, and I'm elaborating for our listeners, of course, um, <laughs> almost shouting that I won a championship with, with Universitario in Peru, and we had the whole world against us. When I say everybody... I mean everybody and, and then sort of come right down and just went okay sorry I talk too much sometimes next question yeah it was a fantastic <laughs> rant just but, as but Peter, I mean, he's, he's a really interesting figure in that you know, as a player he, he retired at the age of 18 you know, he, he gave up very yeah. quickly he realised he wasn't going to be good enough as a player and in fact he managed Tavares yeah Tavares well, he, he went on he became he's um, Uruguayan and yeah he, he became a general manager in a fuel distribution company hmm. Um, and then he, age 30 he watched the 1974 World Cup he saw Uruguay being outplayed by the Netherlands and decided that he had to take it upon himself to, to take a massive pay cut to become a coach and to put Uruguay football right well he, he possibly didn't quite achieve that but what he did do was he, he coached the bar as a Bechevista hmm. um, I mean, it's very hard to say how much influence he had but I think you can see certain similarities of approach he then in 1983 left Uruguay he went to Paraguay and became coach of the Olympic side in 92, and that had a huge influence on, on the last 20 years of Paraguayan football. When I think we, we possibly underestimate what an achievement it is for Paraguay to keep qualifying for World Cups. Mm. That historically, that, that didn't happen, but they qualified for the last four, and we, I think we almost take it for granted now. And it was, it, it was Makarian who, who put the foundations in place for that. So the two teams in the final had an influence over, and then of course Peru was the team he coached who finished third. So... To an extent, he, he shaped the ethos of, of the best three teams in the tournament. Yeah. What did you think of Venezuela's approach? Because I remember all of us, in fact, were at Venezuela's first match with you when you picked out, I believe on Al Jazeera television, your man to watch, Thomas Rincon, on the basis that since he plays for Hamburg, he couldn't be shit, <laughs> I think was, was the word he used. Yeah, that, that, that was... And it turned out to be a masterstroke because he was one of the players that, that the was slightly facetious. I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, <laughs> No, he, he was, I mean, a slightly bizarre thing that my player of the tournament ended up getting sent off twice. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yet still being one of the players. But I mean, he, was, he, was, he was very, very good at the back of the field. I mean, the one thing I'd say about Venezuela, I mean, you've got to give him credit for the way they defended, and they, they do have some really nice technical attacking players. Uh, I think Cesar Gonzalez, although he, he lacks a bit of pace, I think he, he looked really good on the right, mm. especially when he had pace in front of him, as he, as he did in that first Brazil game. He's another Argentine second division player now, um, mm. got relegated with Gimnasia. But he scored a fantastic goal against. Yeah, it's the only goal of the game against. Yeah, goal, yeah. magnificent strike. Um, I think Maldonado is a, is a great player, partly because he, he sounds like some sort of villain from a Spanish novel in the nineteenth century, and he has the facial hair of a Spanish villain from the nineteenth century. Um, he's sort of he's sort of a bit like Suarez in terms of personality, and he's always in people's faces, and he's always yeah. arguing, always moaning, and difficult um, to like. But he's difficult to like, but very effective. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you'd love him if he's on your team. You'd hate him if you're, if you're the opponent. Um, Aranjo obviously Aranjo sorry uh, getting on a bit but, but still clearly you know, a player of great 
quality. Ron Dong, the, the young forward who didn't play every game, but you know, looked very lively when he did play. Looked a, a very complete forward. So they do have they do have you know, nice, neat, technical attacking players. They got a very sound defensive structure. But one criticism I'd have is particularly in the game against Chile, with the, the quarter final, was that they they did seem just to be playing for free kicks. Mm. And that the first first half of that game, with 31 fouls in the first 45 minutes, because they were both tactically fouling and tactically being fouled. Mm. And right. okay, Chile are awful at defending uh, defending step plays, and both, both Venezuela goals in that game came from right wing free kicks. Mm. But he did sort of think, well, it's a bit of a negative way to play. Yeah, people said that Paraguay and Peru played anti football because they played quite defensive football. Well, that's not anti football. Anti football is not letting the game be played. Not letting yeah. the game be played is playing on the fringes of the rules. It's not playing defensively. So I think at times, Venezuela did edge towards anti-football, but that's not to detract from, from the extraordinary achievement of getting to a semi-final when they'd only ever won two Copa America games before this tournament. And their rise in the last, well, last five years has been absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And it got to the last 16 of the under-20s two years ago as well, so players coming through. Ron yeah. Donnelly mentioned that Orozco, of course, he scored the brilliant goal against Peru yeah. at that tournament. Didn't get that much of a look in... In, in this tournament, but yeah, I'm sure that in four years' time he'll be he'll be a significant part of the team. We've just had a text um, uh, message from Skype uh, from Seba on Skype whilst John's been talking, and Seba says that he's going to have to leave soon. Uh, I presume to to put Felipe, his son, to bed. So Seba, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with us about the Copa in general before you go? I think it was um, uh, the level of, of football that we saw. We we had. Uh, almost half of the goals we we had in the previous Copa, but at the same time, and we we saw some things that we wouldn't like to see in an international competition, such as some empty stadiums or, or half empty stadiums. The state oh, no, of yeah. the of the pitch uh, in, in La Plata was terrible. But I think it's a. It, I think some of these changes that we saw are welcome, in my opinion. The, to see Venezuela, Peru competing. And Bolivia being able to get a draw against Argentina in Argentina I think those things are welcome in my opinion and if anything uh, this Copa America has uh, has shown that the World Cup qualifiers will not be easy for anybody and I'm really looking forward for that now yeah and it's going to be interesting to see how Brazil can move on from from that disappointing campaign as well given that they don't have any competitive games if, if we don't include I know that Seba you might you think it's a good competition but if we don't include the Confederations Cup then the next competitive game that Brazil play is going to be their first World Cup group game it's going to be really interesting to see what presumably Menezes is going to stay as manager what he can do with the team given that lack of really intense practice as it were yeah yeah. I thought I thought they were going to include Brazil in this uh, uh, next World Cup qualifiers even though they're, they're qualified but just to make a, a feel of uh, competition even, like nobody will have an off uh, game uh, every now and then, and Brazil like will keep themselves competitive. Uh, there will be classicos going on: Brazil, Argentina, and Brazil, Uruguay. TV, uh, I'm a bit surprised. Maybe they would have been, they could have been included and have their points uh, not counting for the for the standings. If that makes any sense, but that would have been a, a way to com- to keep them competitive, 
um, without getting rusty, you know. Well, maybe Brazil but could now enter the Argentine Primera and they can make it a 41. <laughs> 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 41st game. Yeah, that would be nice. And I'm sure that the managers of the European clubs who, who Brazil draw their players from would be delighted at that yeah. idea as well. Chitting to just spitballing here. Just you know. Yeah, I think this is how it, the it's a more sensible idea than anything Julio Grandal is coming up with. Yeah, just. Just before I go, uh, just one thought that I wanted to share with you. Uh, Ricardo Caruso Lombardi has managed to get Quilmes promoted without even playing a game. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were about to say that he got named as a national team coach yeah. for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> we, can dream, we can only dream, Sebastian. We can only dream. Matias Almeida has managed to do the same thing with River in his very first season, almost. Yeah, without even managing a single game. Exactly. All right, so. Seba, so, we'll, we'll say goodbye to you for now. Um, yeah. We'll carry the discussion on for, for a little while, although we've been recording for over an hour now already. Um, but thanks for joining us via Skype, and hopefully we'll talk to you in person before too long. Ciao, Bantito. Ciao, Seba. Nice to meet you. It was a pleasure. See you. Ciao, Seba. Um, I, I just wanted to get uh, maybe some, some of Jonathan's thoughts on... Um, on being here and, and, and I mean travelling around to games at the tournament like uh, I know for, like for me for example one of the highlights I think was um, sitting next to uh, Jonathan and, and Tim in the press centres and listening to them wall on about their, their war stories <laughs> of, away, yeah, yeah. I think they've been to like 157 tournaments between them or something and <laughs> personally <laughs> I heard, heard some crazy crazy stuff personally I'll never forget after that clip of me on Brazilian television went out on Twitter walking into the press centre the next morning and having Tim Vickery scream at me it's David Bowie <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so I don't know Jonathan thoughts on the, the organisation of the tournament was, did you have any problems there was a lot of complaints from the press about problems and stuff. <laughs> <You're asking> <laughs> I, I'm offended you're not asking me about this <laughs> well it's the first cup I've done I've, I've, previously I've, I've done the World Cup which is obviously you know, supremely well organised but with huge numbers of journalists so that can be quite difficult I've done Euros which are very well organised I've done the Asian Cup which is fantastically well organised because particularly given hardly any journalists go hmm. and I've done African Cups of Nations which really aren't very well organised <laughs> and so I sort of came here with, with my African hat on and <coughs> I would say it's the best African Cup of Nations I've ever been to <laughs> um, but yeah, the organisation wasn't brilliant uh, yeah. I mean but, you know, I, I got tickets for every game I wanted to uh, travelling around the country obviously is absolutely fine was, I had a bit of a problem with the ash cloud but there's nothing you can do about that um, yeah there was one Uruguayan journalist or Chilean journalist or something who wrote quite a long piece that you were showing me the response to I think it was absurd complaining it was like, about the Uruguayan journalist so called it a third world third world tournament he complained about the shortage of coins the shortage of fuel yeah. neither of which I mean after uh, the uh, yeah, yeah, man but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Gondon has failed to act on the ash clouds because. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what was he? He blamed them for. I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, blame, blaming Apple for ludicrous things, or the organisers for ludicrous things. I mean, I think, think the ticketing for, for the tournament was pretty silly. I think the ticketing for fans wasn't great. I mean. No, especially for the final, there was all sorts of trouble for Uruguayans. Yeah, but, but it's this thing of having to, to pick up a ticket. At a specified place, a specified time, mm. and there'd be no remitted. You know, you, you set that up three months in advance. So, for instance, the quarterfinal in San Juan uh, between Chile and Venezuela was, was on a Sunday. You couldn't pick up a ticket on a Sunday. The office closed on on Saturday evening. So, if that meant Saturday evening, Saturday at two p.m. So, you know, that meant that <coughs> fans who maybe had been in Mendoza 
a lot of the Chileans travelled across on the day, didn't they? So yeah, exactly. If you're travelling across, you know, why, why should you turn up the day before a game? It makes no yeah. sense. Uh, or if you've been, if you've been, Chile fan, you've been down in Mendoza for the, for the group games. Mendoza is a much nicer city than San Juan. Why should you go up there on the Saturday, not the Sunday? It's mm. And you also, I heard stories from. Uh, we, we, we're in a hostel with a lot of Brazil fans up in uh, Cordoba, and you heard stories about, yeah, they'd all pre purchase their tickets, but they had to do the same thing. They had to go and pick them up at a certain time. And there was a massive line, apparently. And they had to go in, and the tickets were all just in, in envelopes, uh, just in a big box. And so each person, they had to, it weren't even al- alphabetical order. People had to like, just search through their tickets. Until they find each, but say every single person took 15, 20 minutes to find the envelope, stuff like that, uh, which just make things a little. I more... I think what they were saying as well. One girl, one Brazilian was saying it was just made worse because Brazilians tend to have kind of various surnames. <laughs> so every time you know they'd say one of three names, any one of them could have gone down in the envelope. So of course, yeah. that made it just you know just that much harder. Yeah, as as one example of that, actually, before Brazil, Paraguay in the quarter final, which which I was at. They, they sent the team sheet around and I had to go and find a Brazilian journalist nearby and, and, and go, this, this guy here, is that Robinho or Alexandre Pato? Because they had completely different names, on the, yeah. n- names that I'd never heard either of them being no, referred to like before. Four or five um, it was, yeah, and of course after she told me, I realised of course Ro- Robson de Souza or whatever is, is Robinho, but at the time I was genuinely, I couldn't work out who it was at all. And I'm not going to get started on the, on the ticketing for the media point of view because I had the worst experience of any of you and I don't want to bore Alice. <laughs> um, but I didn't have to pay a bribe, so I mean, in that regard, it's better than Africa. Excellent. Glad to hear that. <laughs> Some of the, the best games you went to? I think it's. Um, I just think Colombia was, was really good. Uh, I mean, I know I finished 0 0. I mean, you have quite a yeah, yeah, yeah. game here, so. <laughs> Goals on everything. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> overrated, some would say. Uh, no, but it, it was a it was a really nice atmosphere in the stadium. Um, Santa Fe itself, of a walk to the ground, is really impressive. You sort of go through this park, and there's, there's these sort of very old-fashioned lamps, and it's probably I don't know half a mile down down that road with the lamps on either side. It's a slightly foggy night, and then the, the smoke from the from the uh, cherry stands, and it sort of it gave it this sort of special feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Argentina couldn't couldn't live up to it. Um, but the, the, yeah, that was that was a really good game. And I think actually, although I didn't appreciate it at the time because I was so cold, uh, Chile Venezuela in the, in the mm-hmm. quarterfinal was the second half, especially when Chile really came out of Venezuela. Yeah. That was really good. But I have to say, I was just desperately get down to the patio heat as an impression it was absolutely freezing that night. On, on which night, the press room in in La Plata. Oh, that was incredible. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could have stored beef well, in there. It was like a, like some massive refrigerator. Yeah. It, it was. I mean, the day that. The first time that I was there, I, I missed the opening game after not showing up on the on the list and not realising that it would be worthwhile going down to La Plata and trying my luck at getting in. So the first game I saw was Brazil-Venezuela with, with all of you. And I remember being struck by the fact that although it was about 0-1 out on the stands, it was actually colder in the press room. I think you exaggerated, but it was about 8 or 9. Yeah. No, I think it was... And it was about 0 in the press room. OK. I think it was I might, yeah, I think it was I, I'm sure it was around freezing. No, by the time the game cold. finished, that, that's that's one of the one of the calls I've ever been in a game. Because see, in, of course, in, in England, I've been in much colder games, yeah. or, or Russia, or wherever. But you go in the press room and it's nice and warm, and you have yeah. a bowl of soup. And, mm. uh, but the platter was it was yeah that, that sort of tin hut. Well, probably all the was absolutely freezing in there. Mm. Yeah, I think out of the three stadiums I went to, um, me and Dan, we managed to get Cordoba, uh, Santa Fe, and La Plata, and obviously the Monumental as well. So that was before, and 
yeah, I think I can speak for myself. Like, I was blown away with kind of the treatment in Santa Fe, Cordoba, fantastic stadiums. Like, they've done really well to make them. And La Plata, no, left, left me a little bit cold. Maybe it's like the games I saw there, or yeah, for our or listeners, La Plata is the yeah, maybe the press room left me cold. <laughs> Uh, for our listeners, La Plata is the, is the new modern stadium with the, the stadium screen and the roof yeah. and everything, which is very, very different from the average Argent- Argentinian stadium. The, the, you know, the, the first thing you have to get right in any stadium is the pitch, and the pitch in La Plata was awful. The pitch was terrible. The start with it was too small, but, and then it was, mm. it was just... I mean, I, I, was, I was doing some Algeria stuff at pitch side uh, for that second game in Brazil-Venezuela. Yeah. And from, from back in the stand, it doesn't look that bad. You get close up to it, and you realise it's full of potholes, and they've covered it over <coughs> with green sand. And that was after one game. Mm. I mean, and, and not one game where there'd been torrential rain or anything. Just one game it destroyed the, that pitch. Well, ironically, the game where there was torrential rain uh, was prior to the Uruguay uh, Peru semi final, uh, which again I was at, yeah. and, and it was the only game that I saw there. The, the, the only matches I went to were the La Plata games, excluding the third place playoff and the, and the opening night game. Um, to the final in, in the Monumental but that semi-final was the, was the only game that I saw where the pitch wasn't hacking up all the time and the only thing I could think was that the rain had sufficiently weighed the turf down weighed the sand down or whatever so it wasn't coming up all of the other matches I saw there were just yeah, I mean five goals uh, in five games I think mm. I mean I know it wasn't a high scoring tournament but I, I, th- I think um, the fact that of those five goals you had two ridiculous bodies as well. Yeah. You know, very hard to strike the ball off, off that pitch. And, and the penalties in the Brazil-Paraguay game, I mean... Yeah, Elano was sent on for Brazil at half-time of extra time, specifically to take the first penalty, because he's their first-choice taker, and it was astonishing. Just One of the worst penalties. Taking a very slow, yeah. composed run-up, coolly winding his foot back and then whacking it as high over the bar as I've ever seen a professional oh, yeah, football player. It's a penalty. It was, well, it was reminiscent of uh, the Beckham penalty against Portugal in 2004. When you yeah, saw his left slipped. foot just sort of slide underneath him as he struck the ball. Yeah. And you saw him looking at the penalty spot afterwards, which I, I guess anybody could do as an excuse, but I think he, he really did slip as he, yeah. as he tried to strike it. Well, I think Brazil's second or third taker also, after missing his, turned around and actually kicked a huge chunk yeah. out of the penalty spot. It, they didn't show it on the television, but the ref actually booked him for it. But, you know, um, Paraguay managed to score a few goals, Yeah. But again, apparently they, they scored the penalties by, by just belting them straight down the middle. Yeah. I mean, they, they weren't they weren't good penalties. They just happened to be hit at the target. Mm. Um, any other thoughts on on the copper best fa- favorite players? We've, we've well, I think so. Is you, asking about experience of travelling around. I think Mendoza was was really you know, to, to see the number of Chilean fans there was was fantastic. I, I've been mm. told by the uh, woman who owned the, the guest house where I was staying, going to Avenida Sarmiento. That's where all the best parishes are. And I, I went there, and you just couldn't even see the Parishas for red shirts. This was on the, the day of Chile, Peru. Um, and so to see all of them, and then walking back from the stadium afterwards, there's this huge, massive red. Um, and, and, you know, you, you kind of wonder how that, how that happens, because Chilean league games, okay, Colo Colo or, or uh, Universidad would, would get 10, 15,000, but most Chilean games get, what, 2,000, 3,000? Mm. So suddenly you get 25,000, 30,000 pouring over the Andes. I mean, they're talking of queues of six or eight hours at the border. They were saying before the first match, there was a report saying that it was the biggest, the, the, the largest number of people travelling across the, the the border all at one time in history. 
No, and that was the first match in San Juan. Of course, the second game was in Mendoza in a larger stadium closer, and closer yeah. to the border. And a bigger game, it was against Uruguay. So, Including yeah. San Martin and his armies and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Uh, no, I think that actually vindicated the position to take the tournament around the, the regions. Yeah, well, I, I, I want to hear your thought, oh, Dan's thoughts actually about uh, the, the games in Cordoba and, and Santa Fe, the provincial centres, where the, the, the atmosphere was just so much more I, real, I think realistic. it worked very well, yeah, especially when, because when we were there, we went we managed to see a game first uh, with Colombia Argentina and Colombia brought a lot of fans obviously we're talking before the tournament there's a lot of Colombians in Argentina mm. I think the really impressive thing was how many Paraguayans were there for it was a game against Brazil the first one the 2-2 draw like they absolutely kind of destroyed the Brazilians in terms of how many fans went to the ground how many the noise. how much noise and you think kind of Paraguay compared to Brazil in terms of you know both population and like the economy, the yeah, GDP, ability to travel it's and not in the same world. Like they're so far behind, and the fact that all these yeah, these like Paraguay guys just made it in force. Like mm. it's to be commended. Like yeah, and a lot of them were very very easy on the eye as well. Which <laughs> I, I was slightly surprised by what Seba said that um, he was disappointed by half empty stadiums because I, I think this tournament has been far fewer than you normally get at the Copper. I mean, it's very yeah. easily misled by. One of the Final semi- Champions League or the Premier League see four stages all the time. Yeah. Historically, that doesn't normally happen. The Paraguay Venezuela semi final, yes. which obviously was the one that was expected to be Brazil Uruguay, but most people had, had the, the three group favourites won their group, was, was noticeably. That, that, that game was empty, poor. But, yeah. The Venezuela Ecuador game in Salta was, was pretty poor. Mm. And the third place playoff obviously was pretty poor. But I thought all the yeah, others were 80, 90% poor. It's funny you said that actually, because I remember I was. Um, Tweeting or signing the La Plata semi final, it would have been. And I made the point, you know, like it was Uruguay, Peru, both of them brought masses of fans, it was a real kind of carnival atmosphere. And I made the point, you know, the stadiums full to the, full to pieces of like Celeste and white and red. Someone else kind of replied to me, really, it looks kind of empty, empty on TV. <laughs> what happens, like the TV cameras were pointing directly at this, the one stand, which was, not which quite was probably full. about 70% full. The rest right. of the stadium, was um, 100 percent. Yeah, so I was at that game as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't. So you know, I just thought it was almost a sellout. With yeah, so, okay, some people don't quite make yeah. it. So probably 90 percent. So it would have been yeah, the stand opposite where we were in the press box was kind of yeah, probably 70 percent full. Kind of the probably yeah. the most expensive e- seats. Equally, somebody mentioned to me yesterday, in fact, last night on a on a forum. Um, that the Uruguayan fans didn't seem to be as happy as you thought they would be after the Copper oh, win. Nice I mean, we were in the stadium and it was one of the loudest noises I've ever heard when Fernand's third goal went in with, with about a minute to play. It was it was amazing. So I can't, I can't imagine where on earth the TV cameras were being pointed out for him to get the impression they didn't give a toss. I, I, this, so just to go back to this idea of the regions and Mendoza and, and San Juan being full of Chileans, uh, Jujuy was, I mean, a lot of mm. Bolivian immigrants lived there anyway, but a lot came over the border. And that game that Bolivia played there, when unfortunately for them, they lost to Costa Rica. Yeah, there was a real celebration of Bolivianness. That people in, in national dress, you're wearing the, the ponchos and the bowler hats. And Boliviarity, the I believe. It's Boliviarity, if that's a word, yes. Um, and that, that, I think, it's just that, that bit of planning, I think, worked and was, was very sensible. Mm. It would have been easier for us if they'd been playing against right. Buenos Aires. Yeah. But, but not as fun, I don't think. But not as fun, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It, it got me to City. Like, I haven't been to yeah, many times I've been here before. Exactly. And I'm very concerned about Lowland Mendoza and Sample the Wine. Yeah. And me and Dan certainly have a few stories that we've been regaling since we got back. Yeah, which are not necessarily repeatable on a on a family podcast, <laughs> but uh, if you would like to share any of them. No, no, we, we won't share any stories, but we did meet some lovely people on 
as I said, fans from um, from Brazil. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, let's let's just say that the dance volunteers. Yeah. The dance don't kiss and tell. Well, experience. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of ironic, really, because we started this this podcast off talking about what what's also an attempt to federalise, as, as they say here, um, the the national championship in Argentina to take it to other parts of the country where it doesn't go. <laughs> We're criticising them for bringing, you know, which is a ridiculous system, 40 teams in the first division, you can't have it. But at the same time, it's, it's almost, it's part of the same movement within Argentina. I, I see football. that, and it's, it almost legitimizes it, because well, the, the, history, there, the history in Argentina has been so, well, the history of football has been so focused yeah. on the capital. <laughs> but, how, but I think you know, it's, it's, it has to be, or, you know, the ideal would be to do it organically. We've seen, seen the same thing happen no. in Russia, that there's been a... Yeah, previously Moscow was always a great centre and, and in, in terms of the Russian League uh, there's only one non-Moscow winner until five years ago mm. since when we haven't had a Moscow winner but that's happened organically yeah. and if you, if you look at if you look at the, at the Vimera now it's probably as federal as it's ever been exactly yeah. yes it's, in so a way it's starting, starting to happen happened. organically with Argentina so anyway to, to then over-promote <coughs> the weaker provincial side seems to, to slightly Seems yeah. like to value what people like Godot Cruz mm. have done yeah, by, by, by becoming a viable force. Four separate teams in the, in the Premier next year. And yeah, Atletico, Rafaela, Colón, Union, and, um, and one other. Olimpo. Olimpo. Well done, yeah. yeah. Um, Olimpo, of course, uh, Buenos Aires province, but yeah, Newell's yeah, yeah, are the other Santa Fe province. Yeah, happening naturally. And obviously, Belgrano in Cordoba and the others. Yeah, there's plenty, I mean, you can ask, considering, you know. So, so much of a pro- proportion of the nation's populations in Buenos Aires, it's natural they're going to kind of have more. You can't mm. force these kind of things, I think. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, the, the AFA have picked up on the success of that and they are talking about playing World Cup qualifiers now, at least in Córdoba and one of the... Mendoza, I think. Mendoza. Or San Juan, or any, anyway, yeah. But, yeah. They, they presumably won't play the Mendoza qualifier against Chile. <laughs> no. <I'm sure>. no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, should we quickly talk about, I don't know, to team of the tournament, players of the tournament? John, as our guest, who, who was your favourite player of the tournament, with the exception of Rincon, obviously, for Venezuela? Um, well, the man of the tournament was Tabaris, no question. Mm. My, my team of the tournament, uh, I, 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 made, I, I put the team together after the semi-final, and po- I, I put that in the Guardian and Sports Illustrated websites. Possibly, I, I, I slightly changed that after the final. But I, I'd, Via in goal, definitely the Paraguayan. I thought he had a fun. I mean, Muslera played very well, yeah. but I, I think uh, Via was was yeah, consistently excellent. He's a player we'll be seeing more of uh, us us three at least now because he's signed for Estudiantes right after the semi semi final quarter final with Brazil. Um, I think it hasn't been a great tournament for fullbacks. Uh, no. So I guess my team of the tournament would have have three centre backs. No, I, I had uh, Veron. I noticed this because you, you put but a 3-4-2-1 and you told us before how you don't like three at the back normally and I, I wonder I don't if like that three was due to the lack of fullback. I, I don't like three at the back. You know, formations are neutral to, to give you another one of my cliches. <laughs> um, three, three at the back doesn't work against teams you play one up front if you're using it as a trying to use it as, as, a, as a balanced attacking formation. It works as a defensive formation. But so many South American teams play with two up that you can justify playing three centre-backs. Right. So I think Lugano and Kratos were both both superb. I left out Kratos and, and possibly haven't seen him in, in the extra game, mm. uh, the final. I, I would include him. Uh, I thought Biscarondo from Venezuela was excellent. Yeah, so today yes. my, my three centre-backs. Uh, wing-back, I went for Maicon largely so I could have a laugh at Dani Alves. <laughs> uh, but Maicon, just, he just looks such a... 
more complete player than Daniel Alves. I'm just struck by how massive he is. He's he 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 was, was the first time I've seen him in the flesh, and for a fullback, especially, he's enormous, like a bull. Especially when I'd seen Danny Alves in the same mm. position, you know, a few days. <laughs> Danny Alves, he's dyed his hair. He looks like Jamie Bosch from yeah. Last Hope. <laughs> <seems very odd. laughs> um, I guess there's an argument for Maxi Pereira in that, that position. Mm. Certainly, Alvaro as the left wing back. I think he's had a, another excellent tournament. Back in midfield, um, I, I went for uh, Lincoln and Carlos Sanchez from Colombia. I, I think there's a very good argument for uh, Alvaro Rios. I thought, thought yeah, yeah, he, he had a very good tournament. Was excellent in the final. I think the way he, he neutralised Odegaard was 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 key to the way you acquire one. So, so possibly he'd come in, but, but yeah, two holes. Probably, probably him and Rincon rather than Carlos Sanchez. Look, Carlos Sanchez did a fantastic job marking Messi out the game mm. in, in the Argentina Colombia game. Then the um, Paulo Guerrero was centre forward. I, I thought even before the hat trick, he'd had a, about. I made the team before he scored the hat trick in, in the third and fourth place game. Just holding the ball up, um, his, his linking up with with, uh, with Vargas on the left was excellent. He, he, he reminded me a bit of Asmo Jan the way he played for Ghana in, in the World Cup. Yeah, actually quite a thankless job of working a long way distance from your midfield, just doing your best to hold the ball up till midfield and get up to support you. I thought he, thought he did that excellently and then obviously the, the, the third place game getting the hat-trick cements him in that position then off him I had Luis Suarez which I, I, I obviously certainly wouldn't change after the no. final I think maybe you could make a case for, for Forlan to be the other player there you could maybe make a case even for Messi mm. uh, but the player I went for was Alexis Sanchez right um, but I, I think between between those three between Suarez is definitely there between Sanchez, Messi and um, Forlan Yes, uh, I think it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, congratulations to Forlan. Of course, I mean, I personally, I thought he had, a, by his standards, a fairly ordinary tournament. But his second goal in the final, as as you pointed out yesterday, John, drew him level with uh, Scarone as Uruguay's all-time top scorer. Always considering well, the what's history of the Uruguayan side is is a know. great achievement. Yeah, I mean, obviously they they I suppose they play more games now, but the games have more goals than in the past. Yeah, so balances. But what was really obvious to me. Um, was I mean I, I was right at the far left end of the, the press box as he looked at the pitch, so I was right next to the Uruguayan fans and a lot of the Uruguayan fans just behind me, and the the, the real desire for Forlan to score right. was palpable. Yeah, they wanted it to be him. They really wanted him to. What's well, been you know a very difficult year for him. With, he broke up with his girlfriend. Well, there's a couple of weeks. Two key matches in his life: one, one with his fiance and one with um, his, his manager at the Vatico, Flores. And he, he, you know, he didn't have a very good season club-wise. No. And I think it was a, a thought at 32, maybe he's just a little bit past it. And I'd agree with you, I don't think he was quite as good as he was in the World Cup. Uh, uh, I, I mean, in, in terms of scoring, obviously, but uh, I think he, he did pretty much the same job that he did at the World yeah. Cup. And no, I, I, I think if you look at the whole tournament, I, I think, yeah, the semi-final and the final he was, I think he started slowly. Mm. But that's natural because he'd hardly played for Atletico, so yeah. of course it took him some time to feel his way in. Yeah. But yeah, the real... The real desire for him, him to be the one who scored to break his duck for the tournament was it shows what a popular figure he is. And I thought it was, it was a great line from him talking about Tavares and saying he'd, he'd always thought Team Spirit was a myth until he, he, you know, this Uruguay team came together and now I understand what Team Spirit is. And I mean, uh, Tavares, I think it shows how, how, how good their spirit was that Tavares gave them three times during the tournament and the whole team got together and watched it on the 17s on TV. Mm. Which shows not just the togetherness of this squad, but the togetherness through the youth system as well. Of course, yeah. Uh, I can't imagine many other national teams would would do that. Certainly not England. 
far better from me to say. English Dan, your player of the tournament or players of the tournament? Yeah, I won't go for a whole team like John because I think if four of us do that, it might get a little bit monotonous. So no, we've still got half an hour to catch <laughs> up on the Vickery episode. Yeah. So. If we want to match Vickery, right. Uh, no, I'll just name a few people that I think impressed me more than most over the tournament. I think one of them is the Venezuelan coach, uh, Farias, because mm. I think mm. he must... He had a fight with Neymar. He wears he wears um, leather hitman gloves, <laughs> and also the fact that he's 38 years old, kind of looks about 12. Looks about 12, and he came in. I think he started managing, if I'm right, my research is right, when he was about 28, 27. Oh, really? And the fact, yeah, he's just looks so kind of like assured, and he did very well with this Venezuelan team. He's worth mentioning. Like mm. another guy, I thought he was like desperately unlucky that his team didn't go further because in. Uh, Group stages, he was an absolute titan. Was uh, Mario Chepes for uh, Colombia, uh, captain them like to kind of a clean sheet through the whole group stage, and couldn't really be blamed for the goals like himself or their defence. It was more kind of moments of madness, I think, which cost them in the extra time. Yeah, and then obviously Guerrero, the top scorer. I think no one was really expecting anything <coughs> from him or Peru, especially because they'd lost Pizarro and Farfan before that tournament. So to score five goals and lead them to the semi-finals. It's fantastic. And then, yeah, obviously, I don't think you can say enough about Suarez. Mm. Very, very good tournament and deserve winner. Absolutely. Dan? Well, I, I think these guys have already mentioned all the, all the same sort of players, but um, well, a special mention to like three of the defensive midfielders who I think did very well was, was one was Rincon, uh, the other was Sanchez from Colombia, who, as you said, did a very good job on Messi and then just a big presence and. Uh, the base of midfield there and a similar guy in Mexico who's very young is uh, Enrique he's only I don't know 20 or so but he's a massive guy big bald head and uh, like a yeah, really tough uh, defensive midfielder but he, he, he's, a, he's a passer as well and uh, I, I can see like a really big uh, future for him like. so there's a team victory one like because Tim's got this weird yeah. thing about formless you, you can't stand <laughs> four men it's an obsession yeah <laughs> it's just one more player I'd like to uh, <laughs> oh, right. point out not because of anything he did on the pitch, but just because I remembered something he said, and it's just the fact he's the best character in the whole football. Um, Sebastiano Rio. I, yeah, I was about to say, I was about to try and interrupt and say, I'm guessing you're going to say it, yeah, right yeah. I know what you're going to say. Who came out brilliantly today, um, I think they were talking about Diego Lugano, who's, was it Dan's, Dan's uh, description is the angel face assassin. Yeah. Angel face hatchet man, yeah. Angel face hatchet man, yeah. <laughs> we, we should mention that Uruguay won the Fair Play Award yeah. at the Copa as well as winning the Copa itself, which is something of a turn up for the books yeah. historically. And, and so it would be Lugano who goes out to collect it, I see. And so Abreu, as he does, just says whatever comes to mind. Came, comes to the camera today and says uh, something like, well, if they give Diego Lugano, Lugano the Fair Play Award, they'll have to give Bin Laden the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, 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 bro, it's, it's fantastic. Oh, um, and well, that brings me on to another couple of players. Like I was going to mention was Lugano and yeah. Quates, of course. Um, and yeah, I, I can't think of anyone else, especially the, the one I've most been impressed by actually is Venezuela's goalkeeper oh, Rene right. Vega, yeah. who uh, I, think it was who I, I, I wanted to. When they didn't put Danny Hernandez in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a controversial decision. <laughs> 
But it paid off. I, I wanted to give Vegas some praise because I, I paid attention to him during the tournament, and I, I think I counted at least one occasion in all of his matches where he went and claimed the ball one-handed at least once, when it was completely unnecessary to do so and, and perhaps slightly risky. But it was just super against Brazil in the first group stage. He did it two or three times. So that was the other thing I was going to mention. Just it was a great tournament for goalkeepers. It was three. As well as him, Richard, uh, Romero had a really good tournament. Yeah. And was Lera, Lera, of course, yeah. I'm happy to look into that, I thought it was very good. <coughs> yeah, can we remember his name? Maybe? I can't, no, I was going to say I'm tempted to look it up on, on the net, but it'll probably, it might take too long. Let's, let's have a quick ping about because it seems not fair. It seems a bit unfair on him not to mention him. I'm sure he's listening and will be devastated <laughs> if we don't do. But yeah, apart from this, the other thing I'll have to say actually, we've mentioned the organising already, but now I've brought the Copa America official website up. The rage comes back, huh? It's not rage us, it's, it's more interest. We've got five main headlines here. The first is Luis Suarez wins best player. The second is Guerrero of Peru is the top scorer. Justo Bichar is the best goalkeeper of the Copa America. Right. Sebastián Cuartes receives the trophy for best young player. And the fifth story is Justo Bichar says that Paraguay went from giant to little and praised Uruguay. <laughs> we, we should mention that the Copa America official website is all done in Spanish, and, uh, sorry, in, in English and quite poorly translated. None of those top five stories... None of the headlines are that Uruguay actually won the tournament. <laughs> That's uh, which, which seems to be whether they assume that we know it already, which is a fair enough assumption, but it still seems slightly bizarre. But Ecuador's goalkeeper, uh, they have one called Alexander Dominguez, but the number one was yeah, Marcelo Elisaga, who looks. Doesn't look anywhere near as Ecuadorian as the rest of the team, in fairness. I think that's slightly suspicious. Um, <laughs> but anyway. We've, un- unless anybody else has anything to add no, on, on the copper, I've, I've found it an interesting copper rather than necessarily a, an always entertaining one in, in football terms. I don't um, think it's been as bad as people have said. That. No, I think no, it's, I've, it's yeah. been a slightly odd tournament in that I think it probably should have been more goals. I think mm. you know, the Woodwork team was taking a terrible pounding. Yeah. And, to keep, you know, and as we just said, a number of keepers having good tournaments. So I know that the average number of goals was uh, just over two. Uh, and you'd expect 2.5, 2.6 to be mm. normal. So it is on the low side, but I think the, the, the mitigating factors, mitigating circumstances there, mm. and possibly it wasn't quite as defensive as, as that stat might suggest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, there have been so many shocks, uh, as we've already mentioned, with, with Venezuela and Peru both going a long way, Paraguay. Bitterly not actually winning a match, but going a lot further than anybody thought. Yeah, but again with Paraguay, I think people forget that the yeah they got lucky in the in the quarterfinal and the semi-final. Mm. But in the group game, they, they should have won should have won all three games. And they yeah. ended up drawing them. So and they were very unlucky. They to had three games they should have won. They had three games, two games they should have lost and, and and drew before the third one they should have lost and did lose. Yeah, and, and I think their defensive approach was to an extent forced on them by injury uh, you know, mm-hmm. losing Roxanne Cruz was, was a, obviously a huge thing uh, losing two left backs so they had to play a right back and left back in the in the semi-final changed the whole shape of the side so I, I think there were signs in, 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 in the group stage that Martino wanted to, to make them a more more open more progressive team yeah. and then injuries forced him back um, so I, yeah, I, I think to kind of you know, just kind of go along with the old Paraguay dull and boring Mm. Idea, I think a little bit unfair. Yeah, no, um, and, and in fact, I remember after their first match or, or two matches, a few people were, were sort of saying Paraguay weren't this attack-minded at the World Cup. It's well, it was well, which of course is yeah, extraordinarily drew the first game 0-0 I mean, we we watched the first half and our pressing the platter, and then as hypothermia set in, we, we bottled out and got <laughs> on the bus. 
I, I, I was staggered when I got back to the flat on the and found out I was still there. I, no. I couldn't conceive I hadn't scored in the second half. No. And then, you know, they, they deserve to beat Brazil 2-1 up with a minute to go, and then 3-1 against Venezuela with a minute to go, and 3-3-3. Three, three, three. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we, we sign off, John, we know that you've got a, a magazine to, to plug. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about... Uh, uh, we're going to pretend that none of our listeners have heard of the Blizzard before, which I'm sure is, is a ridiculous thing to say, but... It's a, it's a quarterly going? magazine of quality football writing. Um, you can download it from our website, www.theblizzard.co.uk, for as, as much as little as you want. So if you want to pay a penny, you can pay a penny. We, we recommend you pay £3, but pay what you want. Or you get a hard copy for minimum five pounds for postage and packing. Uh, but again, it's, it's pay what you want, so we would like you to pay us ten pounds. But if you only four or five, that's that's fine. Yeah. And some of the biggest names from from world football journalism. Uh, in Sadly, no interview by me with Javier Pastore in this Absolutely one because not. So no, we, we wouldn't be interested in that. <laughs> his, uh, I'm fairly sure that the, the press girl won't be listening to this. So she's she's already been shouted at uh, by my by my friend who works for Dodici. Um but yeah, that, that's that's the blizzard, ladies and gents. Um, and the next issue will have my my copy of you in it. Yes. So that's if the last two hours have eighteen thousand <laughs> words, you're telling me. Yeah. I'll just transcribe this. I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> pa- pass out words off as your own and. And you're laughing. Um, no, I use the Achilles so bad. <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, by the time anybody hears this, you'll you'll already be in Colombia, John, for the, the World Youth Cup. Is there anybody in particular you're going to be looking out there for, or are you just going out with a completely? Well, I'll be following England um, in the group stage. Right. Uh, I'm actually quite interested in England in the same group as Argentina. So uh, I know Batista has been saying that you know Argentina's youth setup is not producing the players that it was five, ten years ago. No, funny that when so, he's got a load of useless managers yeah we, we put, put in hopeless coaches and they produce hopeless players it's, yeah. like, it's almost like there's a correlation or something mm. um, Mexico who obviously haven't won the under 17s I'm quite keen to see if you know how, how good they are and North Korea who I, I know absolutely nothing about in that group yeah. um, and then uh, I, I'm keen to see Brazil as well because I mean, they, they looked fantastically good in, in the South American Championship obviously three players who, who were key to that side aren't going to be there, Neymar, Ganso and, and Lucas, uh, who were in the squad for, for this tournament. Um, but I'm going to try and get down, it's transport slightly different, and try and get, get from Cartagena down to Cali to see their last group game, and then see, see who's worth watching from, in the knockout stages. Yeah. That's one of the beauties of, of a youth tournament, is you don't have huge numbers of travelling fans, so it's, it's, you don't have to arrange for transport in the hotels and everything in advance, you can play it by ear. Well, we hope you enjoy it. Um, we hope that our, our listeners, whether you're a regular listener or a new listener, have, have enjoyed this. And, and of course, the, the pre cop America show with Tim Vickery. We're going to see whether Gabriel Marcotti or somebody is available for the <laughs> next one because I'm sure that we've managed to. Well, I hope Joel Richards at least. Yeah, J- Joel Richards will be joining us at some That's point. He's supposed to have been done for absolutely ages, but I've been very lazy about organising it. Um, but thank you very much for joining us, John. Uh, bon voyage for tomorrow morning, although by the time anybody hears this, as we say, you'll probably be there already. Um, it's goodbye from, from myself, Sam Kelly, and from the two dams, Edwards or English. Goodbye. And Cola Simone or Australian. Bye-bye. Ciao, chicos. <laughs>